If you could, please uh, turn in your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 18. Uh, that's where we're going to be uh, starting in verse 9. Uh, we'll, we'll actually be starting the, uh, the book of Ruth in a couple of weeks, but in between those, we're, we're doing a couple of uh, standalone sermons, and so they'll just be uh, from, from different places in Scripture, just coming from, uh, from what we've been studying lately and from our hearts. And so uh, uh, just turn to Luke chapter 18, and we'll start in verse 9, and let's read it. It says, he, uh, referring to Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you so much that we're able to come and, and to experience your word this morning, Lord. And, and, and as, we, as we study your word, I pray that you would point out your truths to us, that you would speak through me and allow me to be able to communicate what's, what's actually going on in this passage, Lord. And that through our understanding of, of how we're justified, of the way, the way that you justify us, Father, before yourself, uh, that we would that, that that would bring about humility in our lives, that we would be able to see humility that flows from that, Father. God, we thank you for, for the gospel. We thank you for the truths that, you're, that, you're, that, that you want us to receive this morning, and we pray that, uh, God, we know that you are faithful, and I pray that you would allow me to be faithful to your word this morning, be faithful to, to the scripture that's, that's before us, God. Lord, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. And we thank you that you've allowed us to be able to gather corporately to worship you today. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so, uh, a little small fact about me before we get started. I was... uh, I grew up kind of obsessed with uh, sports, and so a lot of times when I give illustrations and things like that, it's going to be centered around sports, just because that's kind of my life. That's, that was my life when I, when I grew up was around sports, and I'm just kind of uh, glad David, David Van Dyke's not here right now, or you know, Adam Bennett, because they, would, you know, they, used to, they used to mess with me and say that like, pretty much anything that they said, they would have to uh, translate it into football terms for me because I didn't completely understand other things. So anytime, look, there's Adam, he's laughing at me now. So like if I, if, if something came up that I didn't quite understand, they would try to put it in football terms so that I could understand it. So I was, I was a little obsessed with sports, you could say, when I was younger. And so in this, I, I had the opportunity to play on some pretty, some pretty decent football teams throughout the years, uh, through, throughout high school and then into a little bit of college. I guess you can consider it playing, even if you don't step on the field once during a, during a game. <laughs> so uh, anyway, uh, I was able to, uh, to be a part of the quarterback position, which is, a, which is an interesting position. Uh, 
it's it's a fun one for sure. And uh, I, I just remember one time I got, I got to I got to dress out for one game in, in college. I got to dress out to to go to one game, and it was at uh, Strawberry Stadium at Southeastern. And so I got to I got to go over there, and it was it was so much fun, uh, you know, being able to experience all of that and being able to go to a, to another team's stadium. But then, uh, you know, we're we're standing on the sideline, and there's these there's these guys behind us. Uh, it's Southeastern's baseball team, and they like to get right behind the visitors. Uh, you know, the visitor's bench so that they can yell obscenities and yell things at people the whole time. And so, like, I, I see them going down the line. Like, they're, they're yelling all these things at these other people, and they're just picking on them for certain things. And then they get to me, and they're like, 16. That was my number. They're like, 16, you got to be a kicker. Like, there's no way you could be a quarterback just because of, you know, because of your size and because of your stature. And, and everybody just busted out laughing. It was like, but no, I, I was actually a quarterback. I wasn't a kicker. No offense to kickers. But uh, with this quarterback position, you, you get the opportunity to be kind of a spokesman for, for your team in a lot of ways. And my high school coach kind of put it like this. He said, you know, like, if we, if we win games, it's your fault. And if we lose games, it's, it's your fault. It's going to come down on the head coach, and then it's going to come down on the quarterback. And so you have to be accountable for that, and you need to be able to understand that, that with that comes different types of relations. So with that came something that I had never done up to that point in my life, and that was addressing the media. And so, like, I, was, I did not like this and was not a fan of this at all. Like, I, I didn't want to be a part of this. And so I would always, like, try to, like, if, if I saw, like, KPLC was coming to, to our football practice or something, which they did, you know, when you got into the playoffs and stuff like that, they would start showing up a little more. I would go, like, into the middle of these huddles and, like, try to hide from my coach. Like, maybe, maybe if he doesn't see me, then, then maybe he won't, uh, like, make me get on these interviews and do all these ridiculous things that we have to do. But one day, finally, he caught me. He's like, oh, look. He's like, Trey, come over here. Come over here. You're, you're going to interview on this camera. And I'm like, oh. So I go over there, and the reporter sticks the microphone in my face immediately, and he starts reading off my, my stat lines from, from a couple of games before. And he's like, oh, you, you threw for this many yards, and you passed for this many yards. How do you feel about that? And, you know, like, uh, I saw you threw this interception in, in this game at this time. Like, what, what do you, what, what, how does that make you feel? And, and I, may have, I may as well, you know, at that point, I, I had been rehearsing it so much that I may as well have just pulled a little cue card out of my pocket and started reading because I had seen – Peyton Manning for years on TV, just going up there and saying some of the most general and ridiculous stuff, the, the bland and the boring interviews that he gave week after week after week. You know, I knew exactly what to say. Well, it was a, it was a team performance. You know, our team, our team did such a good job with the offense. I couldn't have done it without the offensive line. Their, their blocking was, was fantastic. And without the defensive players making these crucial stops in the game, and there was no way that I could have been able to made the, make the plays that I made without the receivers, you know, catching the ball well. You know, coaches, they call great plays. The people in the, in the booster club, they made these great turkey sandwiches before the game. So, like, you know, I got all of this stuff, you know, it was it wasn't me at all. You know, it was all these guys, blah, blah, blah. Let's go. Let me deflect the fame to everyone else and try to make it look like I'm that guy. And don't get me wrong. I definitely believed all these things. Like everybody knows without an offensive line that a team is absolutely useless. I would have, amen. you like that? <laughs> so 
Yeah, so the, the point was less, though, that I really wanted to show love to my teammates and that I, really wanted to, that I really thought of myself as less, but I really wanted to be perceived as that person with humble character. Like, I wanted to be known as that guy that was, that was a humble guy. I wanted to be seen as that guy that, that didn't think highly of himself, that didn't, that didn't consider himself before others. And as I've moved on further in my life, I see that my actions sometimes kind of try to reflect the same thing. Like, I, I want a perception of me to be had. I want, I want people to think, uh, to think that I'm doing the same thing. It's this, it's this false sense of humility that's, that's just infiltrated everything about me and about a lot of other people that I've seen. It's, it's the, the things that we do, the Facebook statuses that we put, the, the way boyfriends and girlfriends deceive each other when they first meet into thinking that they're a different person than they actually are by faking this, this humble and, uh, you know, putting ourselves second type personality. It, it's all over the place. And, and really at the, at the root of it all, when I'm trying to convince you that I'm humble, like when I'm putting forth that much effort to convince you that I'm humble, most of the time I'm really disguising this pride that's just like welling up in me at the same time. Like at this point, I want you to see my humility, like this, this humility that I have, and I want you to praise me for being such a humble guy. Like I, I, want, you to, I want you to see that. And, and, and actually what I'm doing is I'm, I'm not really trying to deflect the glory to other players on my team. I want you to see my ability to put others first. I want you to see my ability to do things like that. And so I want you to worship me for that. It's really idolatry at its core. I want you to think of me as an idol, and it's, and it's an evil thing. I know that's, a, that's one example, but there's plenty of things that we, have, that we do in our lives that, that point us toward that and that, and that lead toward that. So then if this is so difficult to do, like if it's so difficult to actually be humble, like how do we express true humility? How, how do we express the true humility that we see in Scripture, that, that we see from Jesus? In a society that's, that's characterized by pride, how do we actually express humility? So I hope that as we walk through this passage that we can, that we can answer this question, that we can see some of the roots of how people are actually truly humble. But before, uh, but in this passage, as you can see, uh, since we've already read it, uh, before we see true humility come in, we need to, we need to really deal with, with the bigger issue that's going on in, as, as our attention is focused to this passage. Like, we really need to deal with, with the bigger issue that, that's, that's happening here. And it's the same issue that carries on throughout the rest of the gospel into, into a lot of Paul's, uh, Paul's epistles when he's, when he's addressing different churches and different people. And it's even a major issue that's being challenged today. It's the issue of the doctrine of justification. Like, how are we made right before God? How are we justified before God? If God is holy and requires holiness from us, how can we be made in right standing with him so that we can be with him and that we can commune with him forever? Like, this is what's being challenged in this passage, justification. And so in Luke chapter 18, Jesus, uh, he just had this dialogue about, about the coming of the kingdom of God with the, with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were this, were this ancient Jewish sect that, that rose up, and they, they wanted to be protectors of this old Levitical law, the, the, the law that God had established. They wanted to protect that law. And, and what started as people that were pursuing holiness and people that were keeping, keeping God's commands uh, it started off as a good thing, but really it just led to this self-righteous group of rulers, the, these people who were consumed with receiving glory for themselves and with honoring themselves through everything that they did. 
But nevertheless, they were considered the, the religious elite at that time. They were considered the religious people. And honestly, they would have been looked upon very highly by, by all of the rest of the people that were around them, by the Jewish people, by anyone that was, that was in ancient Israel. They would be looked upon really highly. And so uh, Jesus, uh, just as he's done in, in the book of Luke so far up to this point quite a few times, uh, he starts to tell a parable. And so he starts to, he starts to address these, uh, these specific people with a, with a parable. And a parable is just a, a story that, that illustrates the kingdom of heaven. It illustrates, the, it illustrates uh, the kingdom of heaven to those that are listening. And so Jesus is, is just trying to communicate what the kingdom of heaven is like. That's the, that's the goal of his parable. He's trying to communicate what the kingdom of heaven uh, is like and what it looks like to be a part of or to be a citizen of that kingdom. And so in Luke chapter 8, Jesus is, is laying out the purposes of the parables that he tells. He's laying out why, exactly why he tells the parables. He had just shared the parable uh, about a sower, uh, about the sower and the, the seeds that were scattered on the rock and in, in the thorns and in good soil. And the disciples are like, look, man, we just don't, like, what are you, what are you saying? What does this even mean? And he says in Luke chapter 8, uh, verse 10, he says, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they're in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. So these parables have, they have a twofold effect, right? For those who are part of the kingdom, God is revealing this secret, these secret promises, these, these secret promises that are in the kingdom. He's revealing these things through the parables. And then for those who are not a part of the kingdom, the hardness of their hearts is, is revealed. Their, their hearts are hard. So some will come to know and to trust in Christ and to trust in his promises through some of the things that Jesus says in his parables. And some will be driven to just hate Jesus, to, to hate all that he teaches, which reveals the, the hardness of their hearts. And so that's the point of these, that's the purpose of these parables. And so Jesus starts to tell this parable in Luke chapter 18. Uh, let's start in verse 9 again. He also, it says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So we don't really know who the actual audience is here. Like he doesn't come out and say Pharisees, but we do know that they thought of themselves as righteous. And this, this self-proclaimed righteousness caused them to be able to look down on everybody else. It caused them to think of everyone else as, as lower than them at that point. And so it sounds really like Pharisees to me. It sounds, it sounds like he would be discussing the Pharisees. And, and since Jesus was just talking to them, it kind of it makes sense to me. But we don't know that for sure. And, and Jesus, in, in, just in the way that he does so well, he is going to attack this self-righteousness. He's going to attack this, this righteousness that comes from doing works and, and this righteousness that comes from, from what they actually do. So he says in verse 10, uh, two men went up in the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So we got to try to understand, like we got to put ourselves in this place, like as, as Jesus is telling this story, what are these people thinking? I think, I think they would definitely see the, the Pharisee, the, the person that he's talking about as a Pharisee, as the protagonist, as the, as the good guy in this story. Like, we think of it differently because we know what Jesus has said about Pharisees, and we know what he's about to say in this passage about Pharisees. 
But these people at the time, when they hear that a Pharisee is going into there, they think, oh, well, this must be the good guy. The Pharisee must be the good guy. They were the religious elite. They kept these super strict interpretations of the law. They kept these things uh, better than anyone else. And if anybody was going to be a hero in the story, like the good guy in the story, it's definitely going to be the Pharisee, right? On the other hand, this tax collector, he was definitely not going to be the hero in the story. Like, nobody liked these guys. You got to remember, this was the, a time when the Romans ruled in Israel. And so uh, it, was, it was just an oppressive and a terrible control that these Romans had over Israel at this time. And so what we saw was not only did these tax collectors not try to fight against that oppression and against the oppression that was going on there, but they actually took advantage of it. Like they're, they're, they saw opportunities. So when the Roman government would like implement these heavy taxes on the people, they would tax these people really heavily, these taxes that weren't there before, these guys who were Jews would literally be assigned to go and take this unwarranted money from their fellow people. So like these guys are Jews that are stepping in to take money from Jews. And not only were they taking the tax money, they would also be in the game of taking a little bit off the top, right? Like they're trying to pad their pockets a little bit and nobody, they're not really held accountable by anybody. So they would just kind of charge a little bit more to certain people and take some off the top. So these guys are liars, they're thieves, they're traitors, and they probably, I mean, just every other negative word that you can possibly think of to characterize somebody at that time, that's what these guys were. They were the, they were the scum, they were the lowest of the low. And these two men, they're going into the temple, this, this sacred, this holy place of worship to, to pray to God. So verse 11, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. He said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And as Jesus is telling this story, I'm sure the people around him, they, they can totally identify with this. This is what a Pharisee would do. And let's talk about this for a minute. As I mentioned earlier, the, the main idea is that Jesus is communicating through this parable is, is how are we justified? How are, how are we made right before God? And so this, uh, this Greek term that's used for justification, it's, it's a legal term. And that's what I think of when I think of, of justified. It's like a, it's a legal thing. It's a term that's used in a, in a courtroom type setting. And it means to declare righteous or to be declared righteous. And so our desperate need and their, and their need in this time period as well was, was not only to be, to be regenerated. Like, you know, we talk about regeneration where, where the Lord comes in and gives us a new heart and a new spirit. We need that. We need to be, we, we need to be uh, renewed in Christ. We need to be able to con experience conversion where, where we respond to the gospel calling, where we repent of our sins and where we place our faith in Christ. Like we need to be able to see that, but also we need God to act as he has promised and actually forgive us of our sins. We need to be forgiven of our sins and that's where justification comes into play. And so Paul lays this out in the book of Romans uh, chapter two. Uh, that, that the people who do God's law are the ones who are going to be justified, right? That's what he says. He says, if you do God's law, you will be justified. You'll be made right before me. God gives the people of Israel this standard. Like when he's laying out the law in the book of Leviticus chapter 11, he gives, he gives the people this standard. He says, you shall be holy for I am holy. And Paul would go on to say that everyone on earth 
is going to be held accountable to God because of their rebellion against God, because of their sin, the sin that they committed against God. Our sin is offensive, and if God is the judge in the courtroom, if he's the one, if he's the one that's judging us, then we are guilty before him because of our sin. That sin was passed down from Adam from the very beginning. From the time that Adam sinned, it was passed down to us, and we inherited that sinful nature, so we sin because of that. So the question is, how do we get back in right standing with God? Where, where we're not declared guilty anymore, where we're not declared uh, in this guilty state, but we're now declared innocent of our sin. How, do we, how, do, how does that happen? How does that go on? Well, we see the Pharisee first, and he starts to reveal what he believes in his heart about this. Like he reveals what he thinks about this from the very beginning uh, by the way that he prays. First, he tells us that uh, the text tells us that he stood up by himself to pray. Like this was something that the Pharisees would do to, to point out to, it was kind of a ritual at this point. The Pharisees would, would do that to show others that they were set apart that they were not like everyone else, just like he said in his prayer. So even his posture from the minute that he walks into the room says that he's full of pride, like he wants his position of authority to be recognized. He wants that to be recognized by the people that are in there. Like, okay, this guy's he's a Pharisee. He's different. He's, he's set apart from the rest of us. He starts off his prayer by saying, God, I thank you. Like at least he starts off giving thanks to God, right? Like that's a, a good way to start your prayer, I guess. But it's it's... It's just a charade, like it's, it's masking his pride, and we can see that almost immediately. Like, what is he thanking God for? He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. That's his, that's his basis. That's, that's what he does. He says, thank you that I'm not like those other men, the, the people that blackmail people for money, those people that, that don't follow the law, the ones that are sleeping around on their, on their husbands and their wives and, and doing, you know, infidelity. The, I thank you that I'm not like those people, and I'm definitely thankful that I'm not like this tax collector here, this guy that's working for those Roman dudes and stealing all of our money from us, the guy that's acting unjustly all the time. Like, thank you, God, that I'm not one of those guys. And he goes on to say that he fasts twice a week, and he gives back these tithes, or, or a tenth of everything that he, that he gets, he gives it back. And so just before we even get started, fasting twice a week, by the way, there, that was not a requirement. That was not a requirement by the law, by the Levitical law. The law required that, that they fast once on the Day of Atonement, and then all the other fasts were basically voluntary and for specific reasons. And there were, there were reasons why, why you should fast. But, but there was no law in the Levitical law that said that they needed to fast twice a week. This was literally a law that the Pharisees had set for themselves, which in this case served more as a, as a bragging right for this man's righteousness. It, w- it was an opportunity for him to be seen as, as righteous before God. So the prayer started off strong, and it crashed pretty much in a hurry. Uh, and when you look at this, the Pharisee, is, the Pharisee in this parable, he's, he's doing the same thing as, as, Jesus is, as those that Jesus is sharing the parable with. He is fully relying on himself for his righteousness. He thinks that his right standing with God comes completely based on the behaviors and the adherence and his adherence to the law. Like the, the way that he can follow the law, the way that he can, 
he can keep the law's commandments is what is making him righteous before God. His entire hope was founded in him not being as bad as the other people, in him being better than the other people. And how many times do we see that? Like, how many times do we, do we say that and justify that in our own lives? Like, we, like, when somebody asks us, like, hey, what's going on in your life, man? Like, how, how are you doing? Well, you know, I'm, I'm okay, but I'm, I mean, I'm not as, not as bad as these people. Uh, you know, I, I have some sin that I'm dealing with, but I'm not a murderer. I'm not a thief. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm just lying about some things, you know, and we try to justify that sin in our, in our hearts. But, and really, that's really what this guy's trying to do. He's like, man, I, you know, I'm, I keep the law pretty well. I'm a lot better than these other people. Thank you, God, that I'm not like these people. But Jesus is going to, is going to shift that completely. He's going to shift this narrative when he, when he talks about the, uh, the tax collector next. He goes on in verse 13, he says, But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And so we see a completely different posture here. We see a completely different thing going on here. This guy feels the weight of his sin. And honestly, nobody wants to be around him anyway because of who he is. Like he's a tax collector coming into the temple. In fact, I can imagine these people he's telling the parable to probably nodding in approval. They're like, oh yeah, yeah, like he deserves it. Like go over there by yourself, you stealer and you thief and you sell out, you traitor. Like yeah, he should be standing far off. He should be standing by himself. He's stealing from the people. So he stands far off, probably out of shame and feeling just his total brokenness for, who, for what he's done and for who he is. And so the text tells us that, that what he prays, when he prays, he can't even lift up his eyes toward heaven. Like he can't even, he can't even bring himself to lift up his eyes and, and, to look, and to look toward God. All he could do was beat his chest in agony. Like, have you been there? Like when you feel like you're at a, at a certain point where there's no way that you could come to God, like, like there's, a, there's a situation, there's a continual sin that keeps happening in your life over and over and over and over. And when you go to God in prayer, like when you're, when you're finally trying to pray about it, you're like, okay, I can't, I can't even approach you, God. Like there, how can I even approach you at this point? That's, what, that's how this guy's feeling right now. He's seeing God's worthiness and his holiness and his goodness, and it's clashing directly with his sin, with the sin that's going on in his life, with the, thing that's, the things that are happening in his life. And, and he's feeling the weight of that right now, and he just feels completely unworthy and crushed under that weight. So then he probably cries out with everything that he can just muster, that he can bring up, God, be merciful to me. Be merciful to me, a sinner. And this isn't just a normal repentance call. You can tell by, by the way that he says this. This, isn't, this hasn't become a, a ritual to him. This is out of complete and fearful dependence on God. This is a desperation call. This man's a Jew, so he's probably heard and knows the law, and he knows that he's not and cannot keep the law. So there's, there's no way that he could possibly be justified by his own actions before God. Like there is nothing that he has done that's given him the ability to be right before God. So he needs God to do this mighty work, to step in, to be merciful to him. He needs that. And because this tax collector was able to feel the weight of his sin, we see this humble attitude flowing from him. We see this, this humble attitude coming out of in his conversation. And so Jesus said, I tell you, this man, uh, talking about the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. 
rather than the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so like I, like I illustrated at the beginning of this message, like I, I used to think that humility was, was something that could be worked toward, like something that I could, that I could figure out in my, in my mind, a way, to, a way to muster that up, a way to do that. And just like Blake shared last week about the fruit of the Spirit, I, w- I was kind of shortchanging myself. Like, I, I thought if I continued to act like people that were humble, then I could probably be a humble person. Like, I, I could step into that humility. Well, guess what? What I was trying to do, what, what, I was, what I confessed to earlier, what I was trying to do the whole time to deceive people, it actually worked. Like, I had people convinced that I was a, a, hung- a humble, uh, respectable person, like when, it, when in reality, I was just as proud as anybody else. I, I had pride in a different way. Like, I was, I was just as proud as the next guy. I cared about what people thought of me way more than I actually cared about displaying real biblical humility. I wanted people to think of me that way, but I, I, I wasn't actually displaying real humility. And I know this was completely because I had not fully dealt with, with the depth of my sin and understood my sin's ugliness. Like, it, it hadn't quite been revealed to me, and I didn't, I, I didn't need God to show me his mercy because my sin really just wasn't that bad. Like, it wasn't, it wasn't a terrible thing. But when we encounter the Bible, we see such an ugly picture of sin. We see such an ugly picture of sin and a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ at the same time. Like, you see, God had mercy on this tax collector, He considers him justified in his sight only through God's mercy on him. And justification in the same way, it comes to us believers today through God's mercy and his grace in providing Jesus Christ to us. He he provided his son Jesus Christ. And Paul Paul lays it out pretty well in uh, Romans chapter 3. I'll uh, let you turn there really quickly if you want to. Romans chapter 3, starting in, uh, in verse 19. Paul says, now, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Thank you, God. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul makes it really clear here that by no works of the law, by no works that we can possibly do, can a person be considered righteous in God's sight. No work that we can do, nothing that we can ever try to attain or accomplish will make us righteous in God's sight. Righteousness is totally apart from the law and is received only through faith in Jesus Christ. 
And so according to these, these divine words of God that are spoken through Paul, two things happen when we're justified. Like when we're talking about justification, when we're talking about being justified from our sins, two things are actually happening at that time. Number one, our sin is being, is being looked over by God. Our sin is being, being removed by God. Romans 8, 1 says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our sin is removed. Our sin is taken and is, and is looked over by God. He removes our guilt. And that comes only through the blood of Jesus Christ. Like he, he satisfied the wrath of God. Like he, he paid the price for all of our sins, past, present, and future, that we're ever going to commit if we have faith in him. But there's another part of justification too. God removes our sins and then there's another part of it also. We didn't just need our sin to be removed because if, if our sin was the only thing that was removed, then we would just be neutral toward God, right? We would, God, require, God also required some righteousness within us. He also required us to be, to be righteous. And so we also needed to be righteous in God's sight. So in Romans uh, chapter 5, Paul is, uh, Paul is contrasting between uh, Adam, the original sin of Adam in the garden when he sinned and basically passed down this sinful nature to us, and then Jesus as being the, the perfect fulfillment of righteousness. And, and by the one man's righteousness, uh, by Jesus' righteousness, let's, let's read Romans chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 18. It says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so the act of righteousness of one leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many were made righteous. And that's such a beautiful gospel truth. Like in the same way that this, that this guilty verdict, like this, this guilt and this sin was passed down through Adam, Christ's perfect life Pass, also passes us righteousness if we have faith in him. God, when he looks upon us, when, when God looks upon us as, as sinners, he doesn't see us anymore through the way that we sin and through the things that we do. He sees Christ's righteousness instead of that. And so justification, he removes our sin, like he looks over our sin, but then he also provides or imputes Christ's righteousness to us. He, he credits that to us. How beautiful of a picture is that? Like, not only does God take away our sin, but he also looks at Christ when he sees us. He looks at Christ's righteousness in our place. And so we are justified because of that. He literally sees the perfect righteousness of Christ when he sees us. And so when we think about that, when we think about how God has has done all of the work, how, how we couldn't possibly do anything that would lead to our salvation, that would lead to our justification before him, then what that does is it should bring about humility in our hearts. It should allow us to be humble. It should allow us to be able to, to see what true humility is. Like when we come to grips with the fact that we can't contribute anything, that even the faith that we express in Christ is just a gracious gift that's given to us from God. Like it's something that was just, just given to us and allow, he allowed us to be able to do that. Then we can live our lives in a posture of humility. Like when the weight of our sin in comparison with God's law, 
when that moves us to repentance and when we taste the, the goodness of God and we, ta- we understand that we are literally clothed in the righteousness of Christ, like when we understand those things, we can live in humility. We can actually be truly humble. And so church, I'm pleading with you today. Like this is one of the many things that we struggle with as Americans, especially in the American church. We need to experience true humility. We need to be able to experience that humility that comes from repentance and through an understanding of God's grace, an understanding of who he is and what he's done. We need to be able to finally recognize that we are broken We are very, very broken people, all of us. And we truly depend on God, on his continuous grace, day after day after day. We need that. We need to be able to see that. So much of who we are as Christians, so much of of what we do in in our everyday lives needs to be dependent completely upon humility. We need to have humility in the things that we do. Blake discussed being characterized last week by the fruit of the Spirit. He was talking about how when we, when we make our, our New Year's resolutions, a lot of times they're, they're uh, personal changes in our lives that are really meant to point to trying to change a deeper-seated a deeper issue. And if we're really going really to embody love, joy, peace, patience, kindness goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, if we're really going to embody those things, those things can't be done in a prideful manner. They have to be done in humility. Those things are all experienced through humility. For you in this room that are, that are married, you know, that's the, that's the thing that, that was the, the first thing that I really saw that, that revealed how prideful I really am on a daily basis. I mean, I see it for sure uh, in, in me and Heather's relationship. I know one thing that was kind of was kind of funny. We were in a, we were in an argument one time, and I could you know, she was completely winning like she does most of the time because she's right, and I'm dumb in a lot of ways. Uh, so we're we're in this argument, and she, we're arguing about something. I don't even remember what it was, but but we get all the way through this this argument. And she, I mean, she has just destroyed me in every way. And there's, there's no way that I'm coming back from it. But then she says something grammatically incorrect. And so then I'm like, I got something here. I'm grabbing onto that and I'm jumping on that and I'm, I'm going with it. And so I'm like, well, but you said this incorrectly. And you know, I, it just goes on for 10 minutes longer than it should have because I had pride. I wanted to hold on to something in that conversation. I wanted to hold on to something to where I could say, you know, I, I'm right. This is, this is me being right. And that's just one example. But, and, you know, honestly, we're, we're all pretty irrational in the way that we deal with our wives sometimes. But, but it's so exhausting and demoralizing to a marriage when we deal with it out of pride. And when we come out of, out of pride to the things that we do, we need humility in our marriages. A husband who can care for his wife, who can walk humbly with her, considering himself after her, he's glorifying God with his marriage, and we need to be able to do that. And that's only experienced through understanding who we are in the, in the face of the gospel and understanding what, what we've done, our offense to God, and how he still considers us righteous only through Christ, only through Christ's blood. So we're about to relaunch these community groups in a few weeks. And, and when things get back up and running completely, we're going to ask you to sit across the table with one to two other people in here, and we're going to ask you 
to, to sit across the table with people in our church body on a weekly basis and read scripture and call each other out in sin, like look toward repentance, call, call one another to repentance, confess sin, share truth from scripture to them. All of these things need to be done in humility. Like we, you can't do those things apart from being humble. Like, I mean, it, it takes real humility to be able to sit across from somebody and, to, and, and for them to call you out on something, for them to say, hey, man, look, I, I just don't think, I don't think you're right in that. Like, I, I think you're wrong, and this is, this is my scriptural basis for that. Like, it takes humility to be able to sit back, take that, and actually change because of it, and actually repent of that sin. We need that humility. We need to be able to walk through these things with our life transformation groups. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to take time. It's going to take time to eliminate this pride, but, but we need that humility. And that only comes from our understanding that we have nothing to contribute to our righteousness. We have nothing to contribute. We're, we're hopeless without Christ. And so let's cling to him. And if you're like me, I, I just pray that the Lord would allow you to be able to recognize pride when it's, when it's disguised as humility. Like when, when we really are trying to disguise our pride as humility, I pray that we would be able to see that, to point that out. Let's like recognize that biblical humility is, is so much more than our petty little attempt to deceive people into believing that we have this noble character and uh, believing that we do the things that we do out of humility. Like if anything, that's being extremely prideful and desiring to be somebody else's idol, right? So let's walk in this true humility as, as we like desperately call out to God because we need him to intervene in our situations. We need him to act on our behalf. We need him. So before we try to go and work toward humility today, before we try to emulate somebody on this earth that we've seen uh, become humble, I pray that we would fix our eyes on Christ. And Christ is the perfect example of humility. And we get that, we get that in Philippians 2. Uh, let's turn to Philippians 2 really quickly. Philippians 2, it's uh, talking about Christ. It says, uh, it says who, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and has bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So I just hope that as, as, we, as we see the humility that's in Christ and as we see the, the sinfulness of ourselves and, and how, how evil our, our thoughts are on a daily basis and, and, the, and our actions and the things that we do, I pray that we would be able to look toward God who is the one who, is, who justifies us. I pray that we would be able to cling to Christ, the one who has set us free, the one who justify the one who brings justification on our behalf when we have absolutely nothing to offer the one who has saved us and who has brought us into relationship with him even though we have nothing so i pray that i pray that we would be able to see that and that that 
would be where our humility flows from as, as we go forward. Uh, could you pray with me, please? Father, I, I come to you confessing today that even my greatest attempts to be humble usually have pride in them. Father, I, I confess that to you because I know that my heart is evil. God, would you work in me? Would you allow me to be able to see the evil that I'm a part of on a daily basis and, and to be able to point, to point my affections and, my, and everything that I do toward Christ? God, I pray that, that our church will be a church that walks in true humility. And because of what Jesus Christ has done, because he humbled himself, because he lived the perfect life in complete honor to you, Father, and because he died on the cross for our sins. I pray that we could look toward him as our hope. Pray that we could see him as the true source of humility. The one who shows us how to live. The one who shows us how to experience life. Father, as we as we deal with our husbands and our wives, as we we play with our children, as we teach our children, as we love our children. Help us to be humble. God, as we interact with the people within our church, the people who are not believers, pray that they would see humility. God, I pray that we would point everything to salvation that comes through Jesus Christ, through his perfect righteousness that's been given to us. Father, just as it says in Romans, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Thank you so much that you sent your son Jesus Christ to die for our sins to take on our sin and to care for us in a way that we could never provide for ourselves Father let us cling to Jesus Christ today let us see him as our savior and not try to focus on ourselves, not trying to lean on our own abilities and the things that we do because, God, we fall short every single time. Pray that what we, what we sing and what we say today would be glorifying, would be honoring to you, Father.
thank you for your love and in Jesus' name, amen.